Hello, Hello and, and welcome, welcome to another episode, episode of Mere Fidelity. Fidelity. My name is Derek Schmally, and I'm your host you? for this ETS episode. <laughs> we got to redo that. Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we're having... We have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. We're having a special edition, though, uh, recording live from ETS. Well, not that live. We're at ETS. You can hear people in the background. And Matt's here, too. I'm here in the flesh. In the flesh. At the white male-dominated convention. It's the whitest convention, I think. You're acting like I'm not even here, Matt. No, I wasn't talking about you. I don't think you represent the whole convention, Derek. I... I'm trying to. Th- I, probably, I am. I would not erase you. Please, please don't. I please don't. don't erase me. No. Um, no. Yeah, but it, it's it's it's. I've I've had a pretty good conference. So are you? you, you I'm any- I'm barely here. So, but I've had a great conference for that reason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a great conference. I my paper wasn't accepted to it this year, uh, and so I I just am still harboring ill will towards the conference for rejecting me really. And I don't know why they rejected me. It was a paper proposal that was opposing in vitro fertilization well, that, that, on evangelical wants, grounds. I mean, every, who doesn't want to hear that? Come hear that. Basically. So, no, it's, it's a fine conference. We're here in San Diego, California. And San Diego's... The San, sun has been out today, which has been great. So... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I've been here. I've heard a couple of, couple of good papers um, and connecting with some great folks. Uh, but that's part of what we're excited about for this episode is just because there was a density of... Uh, some fun folks to talk to, so we went ahead and asked three uh, great, great uh, guests to come on, talk to us what they're working on, and so you'll be hearing from uh, Fred Sanders, Gavin Ortland, and Matthew Emerson, and so uh, thanks for listening. We're going to get on into it. You did a paper here. I did a couple of papers here, yeah. I did a Webster on the Trinity paper, and I did a Biola Controversy 1928 paper. Yes. Let's yeah. run the Trinity. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just broke our audience's ears with that laugh. I just want you to is know. It, is it being recorded right now? Are we on? Like, their ears are dead. You recording? You are recording? We'll record an intro later. We'll just like. Or I can no, we can. Rec- I'll record yeah. it. Okay. So. So I need to come clean and admit I'm not sure I've ever listened to the podcast. That's fine. That's, fine. <laughs> that's why you're it's, still good at theology. More of a, it's that's, more of a lifestyle decision. That's why you're, st- that's why you're I, still good at theology. I have to come clean and say I've never listened to the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I occasionally will listen when I'm not on just to make sure you guys haven't said anything crazy. Yeah. Uh, just to check I in. I never say anything crazy. I'm at a stage in life where I have no trapped time alone, right? Like there's no commute, there's no yeah. manual labor that's not in company with somebody else. So the idea of like listening to a podcast seems impossible to me. Like when would I do that? Would I like clock in at work, sit down at my computer and hit play <laughs> instead of doing other things? What would that So this is this be? is the best endorsement we can get of <laughs> yeah. fidelity. I mean, what really is a podcast actually? <laughs> Oh, Do you, man. like, stream it on Netflix? Is this, like, podcast plus? No, how dare you? How dare you come <laughs> on this podcast and talk about Netflix? Oh, I, you should know I've never flicked a net. I actually am not completely clear on what Netflix is. I think it's a way to watch movies and TV shows <laughs> through, a, like, a data stream that you pay for. So, 
Fred, I'm going to ask you. So, so we're here at ETS, and you gave a paper on John Webster and the Trinity. Yeah. It's inevitable we got to ask you about the Trinity and John Webster. Um, it's true. For they're, our listeners. They're both great. We, we, we like our listeners to, A, endorse the doctrine of the Trinity, yeah. and then B, read more John Webster, understand John <laughs> Webster. And I, I, I would actually like love to hear a nutshell what, in a sense, what's the most distinctive thing for folks that they can benefit engaging Webster's thought on the Trinity? Like, what did, what did Webster do for modern Trinitarian theology that that most folks who've read him are grateful for in that yeah. sense. It would yeah. Well, I have the paper here with me, so I'm just going to read the first five pages. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, but so actually, Webster's famously a Trinitarian theologian. I mean, when one of the top things that Webster fans think of when they think about his work is, you know, so, so guided by the doctrine of the Trinity. But when you actually go to, like, say, write a conference paper or a book chapter on the subject, you realize there's no book or essay in which he actually just constructs the doctrine of the Trinity. Instead, it's sort of like he wrote it in the back of his head, and he knows exactly what it is. And so what he does is go out into all the areas of systematic theology and um, carry them out in a method-transparent way so that he lets you know the difference the Trinity would make for this doctrine. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, well, Matt, you had a thought. No, I'm just curious. I mean, that, that sounds thinking Trinitarianly. Yeah versus thinking about the Trinity. Um, is that a distinction that you think would apply in this case? I mean, and, and do you think that there's a loss there that, that has happened by virtue of not doing direct reflection about, I mean, he obviously did yeah. do direct reflection about the Trinity. He must have, he it must just have. didn't get published. It just didn't get published. And he died earlier than we would have liked. Yeah with the five-volume systematic theology still envisioned. Right. Yeah. Did, do you know where he was going to start his systematic theology? Was it organized in such a way that the Trinity was going to be at the foreground of yeah, it? It would, it would have to be. I don't even know the five-volume outline, what that might have been. Yeah. Um, but he, he would have to have, at that point, um, sort of actually laid out some patient exposition of the doctrine of the Trinity itself. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As it was, he kind of had it presupposed. It's a curious thing about John Webster's literary output. He he had big projects in mind, and he you know carried out some some really great tasks. But he really seemed to have accepted lots of invitations to write essays for fest shrifts and a chapter for this and a conference paper for that, and uh, treated each of each one of them very seriously. And so they've got these sort of occasional characters. Hmm. Yeah, and so he would bring out as much of the doctrine of the Trinity as he needed to make the point um, in whatever essay he had. And one of his big points was the doctrine of the Trinity is the main thing. It's the Sometimes he would say things like, he published something that said something like, uh, there's really only one Christian doctrine. Right. The doctrine of the Trinity and its inward and outward actions. <laughs> <laughs> so the nice thing is whatever you ask him to write about, the church, anthropology, uh, the Bible, whatever, he would basically operate with the point being, well, the thing I'm writing about now is not the main thing. The main thing is the Trinity, and let me now trace for you how that central main thing relates to ecclesiology. It does so in important ways, but the first important thing to say is the church is not the central definitive topic of all Christian theology. God the Trinity is. Hmm. 
So it had the, it was, functioned well as an ordering principle um, in his mind. Yeah, you see that in in key essays, even like on conscience or anthropology. You start out okay. So we'll begin first with the Trinity, and then here's how we defected from, and then his ordering and reordering and saving works, bringing us back. Yeah, yeah. It, it like is, one reason to think well about sanctification is. It's the human terminating point of the action of the Trinity in the world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. I don't really care much about ethics, but that sounds good. I'm, I'm, I'm that, trying not to be offended. I was uh, watching this Netflix show about how, how ethics dare is bad. You, how dare you? <laughs> you, did, you did say once a couple of years ago that you weren't sure whether ethics counted as theology, like whether it should even be in systematic theology. I probably just, just I, counting on Oliver I, O'Donovan I just no, kind no, of, not being on Twitter I'm, forever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm still harboring animus towards you. Uh, you for that might comment. have heard me say that I won't turn my back on an ethicist. Well, okay, <laughs> I'm totally going to grant you that there are good reasons for that. I, so I wonder with this with this order of reasoning, I was uh, just spending some time with John Paul II's theology of the body again, and um, it's it's a it's an interesting method that he employs. He follows the words of Christ in Matthew 19. Uh, he is asked by the Pharisees about divorce and remarriage, and um, Jesus says, you know, Moses is a compromiser. It was because of the hardness of your heart. Um, but from the beginning, it was not so, and points back to the beginning methodologically. And I was talking about this uh, with some people, the Brazos Fellows, a great program in Waco that I'm on the board of, free plug. Uh, and Man. the director— is it, free? is it free or are you on the take? No, it's really a free. Okay. Yeah, no, All I'm right. really not on the take, I right. promise. Um, Paul Gutterker, the director, basically asked why that beginning? Why Genesis 1 versus the beginning John 1, 1, right? Mm. Why, not, why not go all the way back if you're constructing a theology of the body or theological anthropology? Why start it with Genesis 1 if you could do start it at the point of the doctrine of the Trinity? It, it, it seems like... There's something in following Christ's own logic and thinking about theological anthropology and ethics there that should be determinative or normative for our own reflection, and that the Trinity sh should maybe become uh, a consequence hmm. of our reflection about these other issues rather than the presupposition for our reflection about these other issues. What's wrong with that way of thinking? <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, notice, here's, I, I just want to point out, Derek, that I just asked our guest what was wrong with my way of thinking versus telling the guest what was wrong with his way of thinking. So, Hey, I'm just glad to see it happen for once. <laughs> well, I mean, starting point can be kind of arbitrary, right? You can, yeah. you can begin your reflection. You don't have to be a, a serious phenomenologist to think. Like, you can just begin your reflection with where you are. Yeah. And as long as you do it right, you can, you know, get to the thing. Um, but the, um, the triunity of God, the, you know, the godness of God uh, is, is prior, you know, as a fundamental basis before you get to something like orders of creation. But it depends on what you're trying to explain, right? If you're trying to explain the theology of the body, um, then starting with the Trinity is a long way back. Right. God being bodiless in the divine nature, right? Like you, right. Yeah. Well, let me ask so. you on, on that. Um, how would you distinguish Webster's theological method, starting with the Trinity, rather than 
uh, recent approaches that are like, okay, we have to have Trinitarian ontologies of the person, Trinitarian ontologies, the Trinitarian ontologies in these. Let's make the church the image of the Trinity. Let's make every so there's there's different ways of being centrally or principally Trinitarian. Mm -hmm. What would distinguish Webster from from some of those other kind of modern forms? Yeah, and this is why it, this is why it's a curious gap between um, what Webster actually produced in his writing and the the form, sort of the intellectual form that his thought had. Um, I think, Matt, earlier you said, gee, I don't know, Trinitarian thinking instead of thinking about the Trinity, that sounds kind of shady. Yeah. Yeah, I know I know those books, I know those authors, and that is kind of shady. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point with Webster is he, he actually had a commitment to the doctrine of the Trinity. He hadn't sort of been hired to produce a worked, to produce a worked example of it. You right. know, at no point was he contracted to give us just, just 20 pages. Like, all I want is 20 pages of John Webster just doing the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. Instead what you get is, okay, I'm gonna write about creation because specifically because we need a more robust doctrine of creation to kind of do some work in our theology. So he writes an essay on the Trinity and creation and you get like two of his best pages on the Trinity there as he's trying to explain what we can and should say about creation in light of the fact that God is fully realized and perfect in himself in yep. the divine life of the Trinity. Yeah. So you like stuff about the processions and the imminent life of God um, and the divine actions, then like moving outward towards the order of providence. It's all kind of there, carefully sequenced, with reference to a doctrine right. that seems seems somehow fully formed in his mind, just uh, never got the 20 pages we wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I just ask? Um, we've got just a couple more minutes, Fred. Um, you have a mission statement <laughs> yeah. that has to do with the doctrine of the Trinity that has yeah. guided your uh, publishing decisions, your vocational decisions. What's yeah. your, what's what's your the Trinitarian social program? Yeah. <laughs> what's, your, what's your Trinitarian social program? That's such a good question. Yeah, I can't remember my mission statement. That probably explains why some of my recent <laughs> writing assignments. Um, um, it's something like um, to increase the odds on the doctrine of the Trinity doing its proper work in the contemporary church. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to ask, how's that going? How, yeah, like, it, over, over the course of, you know, 20, 20 years, years yeah. of doing this work on the Trinity, how do you feel like the uptake is going? Are things getting better or should we be distressed? Um, I think there's a lot, a lot of positive signs. Um, yeah, uh, but you know, I was kind of happy and, and rosy about the 2016 online multiplayer Trinity argument. I, I know there was some, some hostility and some talking past each other, but mostly I thought every time I go on the internet, there's five more good essays on the Trinity. Um, huh. So that was kind of fun. Um, here's, the, here's been the surprise to me. I'm, I'm very, very evangelical. And so I would have figured going forward, I would have predicted I'm going to be the guy who's always saying, what about the Bible? And, you know, what about the gospel? And yeah. what about Christian experience? Um, then you get into the actual arena you're working in, and you realize, oh, I guess now I have to be the guy who's saying instead, what about the classical heritage of Trinitarian thought? This is a great achievement of you know, that we can get through historical theology. Um, and... It's going to take some work to get to be the guy who gets to raise the Bible question. Because instead I'm saying things like, I'm pretty sure God is one and simple, and there are eternal processions and eternal generation. Right. And people are saying to me, 
what about the Bible? What about the gospel? And I have to say, yep, I'm, I'm with you there, but <laughs> let's take a little diversion here through the classical tradition. Yeah. Um, so that I would not have expected that. Hmm. Yeah. That's I, great. I thought I'd go from Bible verse to Bible verse, winning fight after fight on that front. That's not how it's worked out. Um, a free plug for those of you who are at home. You can come study with Fred in the Masters of Classical Theology. Is that the name of it? Yeah, Master of Arts Classical Theology. Master of Arts and Classical I, Theology at Talbot. I, I like theology. regret. I regret having my master's and now like working There's, on graduate school. I wish I could go back just to take actually, the master's. Actually, you can. I'm pretty sure no one's McKenna, going to turn McKenna, you down. McKenna, well, I, I, McKenna so will not let me until I get my dissertation down. done. Here's our situation with the MACT. It's such a good idea. Everyone who already has a theological education wishes they could get this one. It's true. The problem is we need people who don't yet have the theological education to, to get the vision and yeah. say, so you've only got three kinds of classes. Great books of the Bible, right? They're all great, so we got 66 to choose from. Uh, great doctrines and major figures, or as we call them, master practitioners. Right. That's the only three kind. Which ones we'll actually be offering during the year or two or three that you're there kind of depend on faculty publishing interest. Yeah. Um, but but right now I'm doing a Trinity class, and I'll do it again next year. But it looks like exactly the kind of master's that's it's going to prepare you for a rich, either just working forward knowing how to handle scripture, knowing how to handle doctrine, knowing how to engage with the tradition, whether that's going forward academically or in, in, the, in, the, in the pastoral arts, which is yeah. what, I mean, the, the, the study of sacred page, sacred scripture and doctrine is aimed at. That's what it's, it's, what, yeah. it's, what it's so for. 30 unit masters. And so it is drawing a kind of an eclectic, we've, we've got a great incoming group of students right now, the first group we're doing. Yeah. For listeners at home, that's, uh, we'll have that linked in the show notes so that you can read all about it and we strongly recommend it obviously fred thanks for coming on this yeah, is really helpful we're gonna have you on again just because we want another full episode that isn't oh, yeah, we you didn't even hear the story isn't you here. in a telephone booth that was yeah. the this is my second time on what's this called a netcast <laughs> <laughs> and the first time i was in a not really soundproof phone booth in a hallway at tyndale house in cambridge yeah, that was pretty terrible sound quality. We've actually come a long ways, <laughs> I will say. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, that's look true. at us now. We're in a crowded hotel lobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks right. for joining us, Fred. Right. See ya. See ya. Hello. Hi, nice. All right, so we'll get into it. Um, so we've got Dr. Gavin Ortland on uh, for a discussion. We're really excited. He, he's a pastor of First Baptist Church in Ohio. Yep. It's a former creation. Uh, project scholar with the Henry Center at TED's, got his PhD at Fuller under Oliver Crisp. He's doing excellent, excellent work, but we've got him on to talk about his recent book, uh, Ret Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. Yeah. And the subtitle was what again? Yeah, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. Right. And so I, I've been reading this and really enjoying this. Hey, first of all, it's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks but for having me. I've been really excited to um, to just talk about this and just uh, have you make your pitch for our for our folks. What's what's the what's the quick pitch? Theological retrieval. Explain it and why we need it. And then I want to ask a couple questions on that. Yeah, I mean, one one kind of broad way to get into it would just be to say that when you're a Christian, you have a spiritual family, namely the church. And you really need that family, and that family extends not just throughout space, but also through time. And so a kind of a, a 
popular level pitch to a lay Christian who may not know anything about the, the technical terms would just be to say, we need to learn from others in the body of Christ who are different from us, just as we would think of it as kind of narrowness and not good if we don't want to learn from other cultures. If we just say, no, I just want to stay in America and never travel, never listen to people from a different perspective. So also with time, is it kind of narrow if we say, I don't really want to learn from pre-modern Christians. There's nothing I can learn from them. So, um, and I think evangelicalism has some eccentricities. We have some oddities. We have some ways that we're just different um, and not always for the better. Um, and so doing retrieval, which, so theological retrieval just means a shorthand definition could be um, using historical theology to do contemporary constructive theology. So you're just drawing from church history and the theology of the church to work today at systematic theology. And I think one of the, there's many benefits. I think one of them is just um, we can learn, we can get a lot of self-perspective. It's like looking in the mirror. You can see areas where your own upbringing has maybe led you astray or just downplayed certain things that have been more prominent for other Christians. What, what, so what got you down that road appreciating? So it was a particular figure, a particular issue when you started to dive into it and you're like, oh my gosh, this figure, his answer here would open up. What, what, what did that, what was maybe the first gateway for you? The, the gateway the into the Fidelity past. podcast was where yes. it all began for this me. This man. So, um, in Orland. I'm just coming out and saying that, you know. Thank you. Um, no, it was, it was uh, a medieval theologian named Anselm. There we and, go. And um, when I was like late high school, I discovered an argument that he had propounded for the existence of God called the ontological argument. And I just found it utterly fascinating and kind of bizarre. He's basically trying to prove that God exists just from the idea of God. And I just remember thinking, um, surely you can't do that. Like, surely that's not going to work. But then not being able to tell what was wrong with the argument. And so that was just an entryway into Anselm. And then Anselm started just stretching me in all kinds of ways in just his theological method and in the way God is so central to his, his instincts and how he reasons and how he thinks. Um, and so that was then a, uh, an entryway into the whole world of medieval theology and just the basic dynamic of, okay, I'm an evangelical in the United States, I'm a pastor, um, and yet I feel like there's incredible benefit from going back to these ancient theologians and seeing what we can learn. So that was kind of the entry point for me. Huh. So, so um, with that, so the way your book works for, for those listeners that haven't heard it or, or seen it, the first half is kind of your case for retrieval. And then the second half, and I like this because oftentimes you get proposals for how to do something and never get around to actually doing it. The second half is three or four case studies on, hey, let's actually look at what the past has said on these key subjects. Um, for you, for, for kind of contemporary evangelicals right now, if you had to pick one to two key issues where looking back to the past would help us sort out our difficulties in the present doctrinally, yeah. uh, what are a couple of the mo most helpful places for retrieval for us? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've thought a lot about this, and that's a gr good question. I hope um, you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because books that are all about method, to me, can tend to get kind of abstract. Oh, yeah. So, like, a lot of people think of theological retrieval as for um, systematic theology 
kind of analogous to what the theological interpretation of scripture movement was for biblical theology. I remember reading through a yeah. lot of the TIS books and just feeling kind of like they just get a little bit abstract and dry, and even though I'm sympathetic to the idea. So the intent with this book is give a brief manifesto that's like 80 pages, and then just start doing it. Right. Um, so those, the two things I cover in the book are the doctrines of God and atonement. And those yeah. would be two examples that I see. Uh, the doctrine of God, I mean, there are things that almost all Christians throughout space and time have affirmed about the doctrine of God that in the last 30 years in evangelicalism, not only we've rejected, but we've rejected without realizing that we're going against the tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so one example would be divine simplicity, the mm -hmm. idea that God is without composition. And I've just been amazed that, um, you know, it's one thing if you say we need to make a revision to the tradition. I'm open to that in principle. It's another thing if you just do that without realizing that you're even doing it. <laughs> yeah. And you're just, um, because you're ignorant of what the tradition is. So those those kinds of doctrines, divine simplicity, divine impassibility, the, the nature of the relationship between the creator and the creation, things that come up in the incarnation, things like that. There's a lot in there that I think we've just been cut off from a little bit because as evangelicals, we haven't had to fight about it. And we tend to focus on the things we fight about. Yeah, so we fought, right. we, you know, we have a great doctrine of scripture that's very nuanced. Um, and other, you know, we understand conversion, but there's things about the doctrine of God that we've just neglected and let kind of go into atrophy, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. And then atonement would be an interesting one where we've thought about it so much and it's become so polarized where I think retrieval can help us in the opposite way of almost um, opening up ways of reproachment or, or ways of conciliation um, where it, the driving question isn't just yes or no to penal substitution but you yeah. actually have other things you're working through with atonement so hmm. those would be a few examples and I like using metaphors so I use the metaphors in the book of one is for retrieval is like traveling where you can just expose you to new things but another is and that'd be like the doctrine of God another is um, going to a counselor huh. and that's where I think the, the pre-modern Christian tradition can almost be like a counselor because it's giving an objective witness to something where there's been a state of conflict. And that's how I think about with the doctrine of the atonement. Good. That's really helpful. I'm curious. You, you talked about the, uh, the family metaphor. You used the family metaphor mm -hmm. for our relationship to these older texts. How far do we push that? Is this a um, patrilineal family? <laughs> right? Do, do, like, are we thinking about the fathers? And what kind of authority do you think that these older texts have such that, I mean, you, you said in your last answer that you are open to a conscious revision of the tradition. Mm -hmm. How should we be thinking about these texts as authoritative in our process of retrieval? Yeah, well, um, people do get nervous when you're talking <laughs> about retrieval, especially when you start going into the Eastern tradition, I've realized. Huh. Start alarm bells start going off. Really? Also, people also get more nervous about the medieval era than patristic. Okay. Almost, yeah. Most people today are very sympathetic to patristic retrieval, but there's a yeah. lot of nervousness about going to Thomas Aquinas or someone like that, or Bonaventure or someone like that, right. yeah. Peter Lombard. So um, the way I've mapped it out of my own thinking is I would say I've not figured this fully out. I, I mean, I'm in process. But one piece that was really helpful is the, just the reformers themselves. Yeah. 
and just what does it mean to be Protestant, basically? Yeah. And that's why I'm covering the first part of the book, because they were actually very generous, and, and they took the view that they were trying to reform the church, not recreate the church. They're trying to go back to patristic purity. At one point, Calvin says, all we're trying to do is go back to the fourth century. Yeah. Um, so, and then with regard to the medieval church and the Eastern churches, um, they were also very generous to say, we've got some, obviously they have strong disagreements, but they didn't take the view that there was a sort of uh, death of the church that is then resurrected. Right. They, they affirmed the preservation of the church in every single generation, and they were very thoughtful about how they cashed that out. So I would say to the question of what's the family, how far do you press it, I would say we can approach all 2,000 years of church history, East and West, as our family. But then, with the, to the authority part of your question, the scripture I would want to affirm is our norming norm. It's what is over that process that we used to adjudicate the good from the bad in any particular situation. Yeah. And what that will ultimately result in specifically obviously will depend on what we're looking at. Yeah, um, yeah I found that section, especially you do a dive into Francis Turretin's uh, section on the on the church, and uh, <laughs> oh really? You lo- you love I like you love the, ref- the church. Who, I like the who would have thought? Yeah. Right, but but I, but it does. It's a, it's a perfect example. I actually just wrote it's, that for you. Thank so. you. It's it was a perfect example. It's a perfect example. Though I'm going to keep <laughs> persisting here, of Turretin in the middle of what is one of the most famous polemical engagements and expositions of Reformed doctrine, where he's like going after you know papists. Socinians, all kinds of, but at the same time, still saying he has sections saying, okay, but the better, the better of our Roman Catholic doctors, better Roman Catholic doctors, the better of our opponents are those uh, agree with us here or have uh, done excellent work there, and and the church is continuous. So at the place where it was like most polemic, there was still that, okay, but this we can still draw on these wells because you know Aquinas got God right, you know, right. just stuff like that, and so. So in these moments, we're like, okay, we may, you may still have your hackles up and really want to debate Rome or something like that, but that doesn't mean you have to you have to toss Anselm or Aquinas uh, out the window. Uh, out the window, exactly. I mean, yeah. if, if Turretin could hold on to them in various places, well, then so can you. Uh, exactly. Oh, do you think that's true? Do you think that follows? I mean, it may be the case that Turretin can hold on to those, but I really can't. Right? Well, that okay, I'm so- certainly not capable of. Uh, but no one can accuse Turretin of being too soft in his polemics against Roman Catholic <laughs> theology. I mean, he's not afraid to to let the polemics fly. Right. Yeah. So if he's too generous, it's not for being naive about the differences, Protestant Catholic. Yeah, good. I mean, it, it, but it helps to read the. It helps to read all of them in that sense of like, okay, he, he likes what he said about God, but then he won't mince words when we get to the doctrine of the church or doctrine of justification or whatever. And so, I, yeah, being honest about family disputes is also a key part of retrieval on the basis right. of scripture and right. so and his and you know his, his the way he gets to a, an appreciation of the medieval church is very nuanced and very careful i mean he's not afraid to as i've said be critical where he needs to but yeah. he points to separatist move, movements and so he's saying look there's a lot of antecedent voices prior to luther that are coming along raising protests especially the Bohemian Reformation. And that was a long, and there were a lot of people involved. And then he also has the idea of a remnant, which is a fascinating idea that, and, and he's you know quoting the passage in 1 Kings 19, where yeah. God says to Elijah, I have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And he's saying, 
it, amidst all the corruption, amidst all the darkness, God was nonetheless at work. God never stopped preserving a faithful people. Um, and I, I find that a plausible and helpful way to, to think. Um, it shows the theological value, not just practical cash value, but there's a theological structure here of, of saying, no, God, God has been at work, and so it is, it is, it's good to look at the truth that he has been giving to his church throughout, through the scriptures, throughout history. It's, that's, it's an interesting and it's a, it's a helpful way. I mean, there are other ways we could ground retrieval, right? It could be the spoils of Egypt. Uh, I like that too. Is, I like that too. It wouldn't fine. be quite retrieval, but it'd be a sort of thing. Um, yeah, so it, it is interesting to think about the various doctrines. So one thing when I think about retrieval, uh, it's the last thought. Babylonian captivity. Um, Calvin, in the letter uh, that precedes the Institutes. The preface, um, yeah. To, yeah, the preface. Uh, Francis. Francis, yeah. He, he basically has this line, all things, all things are ours. You keep trying to say that the patristics aren't ours, that these things aren't ours, but, but all things by virtue of us being in Christ, all things are ours. And so we can go read basically everything we would want and be able to claim there what's true and good as a kind of Protestant principle of relating to the tradition. Um, should right. is, that, is that a helpful way to think about it? or? Yeah, I like that, and I like that broader letter of Calvin's that you're referencing. And... Yeah, I mean, it, it, maybe that's a takeaway for us today as we think about these things is um, just trying to adopt a generous posture to church history um, and not being sectarian. And some evangelicals take the view that your first level of identity is, I'm Protestant. And then you sort of make excursions outside of that to do, re and it's like, okay, you can do retrieval, yeah. but it's going to be very brief, and then you come right back home to Protestantism. Yeah. And that, what Calvin is saying there is more, no, I'm first of Christ. Yeah. And I think that will lead to a more generous posture. Yeah. I, I, I'd imagine that to get there, we'll have to actually practice a more generous posture towards one another as well. I'm, I'm not yeah. sure most people's first identity is Protestant. I'm pretty sure it's Baptist. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so they're Baptists before they're Protestants. And I, as Just a Presbyterian, pick on one denomination, them. I guess. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Well, I, that's probably true of lots of different Protestants. I so. love me the Baptists. Um, yeah. So. Um. Well, Gavin, that was that was super helpful. I really have been enjoying your book, and uh, for our listeners, uh, check it out. We'll have the link in the show notes at Mere Orthodoxy. Go there, pick up the book, and and again, it's not just method. the 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 uh, The chapters dealing with specific issues are actually just specifically interesting entries on those subjects. So you're going to be getting just good atonement theology or good doctrine of God on a key subject. And so it, it, worth your time. It's worth your time. So thanks for coming on, Gavin. Really great yeah, to have thank you. you. Thank you guys. Enjoyed it. Yeah, awesome. Good joke about mere fidelity, too. <laughs> good, good to know where this, the origination of... Yes. That's where all good things began. This actually, this is really good because friends... So much. I appreciate it. I actually want this to just be us arguing about Baptist, Presbyterian, and Anglican we theology. We can do that. I just want us to Anglican yell at each. Let's just yell at each other. Is there Anglican theology, or is it just like whatever a particular Anglican thinks? Um, 
Is there actually angry? What do you? What are we talking about with you? I don't know. Let's just argue. All right. Yeah. Okay. So we're having you on here at ETS mostly to beef with you because you're a Baptist, right? Uh, which we enjoy doing. Um, people may not know that Matt Matt Emerson is a Baptist, but he he definitely is the uh, best. But we were thinking about doing that or talking about your new book on the descent. Oh, okay. Uh, would, you, would, would you Would you rather do that? Maybe. I mean, it's 50-50. 50-50. You okay. can pick. Okay, Coin well, flip. I, let's let's talk about the descent. I think okay. most people know what's wrong with being a Baptist, but not enough people know about the descent. I think a lot of people think they know what's wrong with the descent too. So, well, okay, let's talk about it. So, what's the title of your book again? For, uh, it's for just called "He Descended to the Dead: An Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday." And right off the bat, that subtitle is—is is that the only one ever? Is that the is that the only evangelical theology of Holy Saturday ever? Well, or well, what? You notice that I use the indefinite article there and evangelical theology. And, okay, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but. Now, there's a number of evangelicals who have written about the dissent uh, and from various perspectives. So uh, I, I would say that uh, most of the time when you get evangelicals talking about the dissent, it's from one of two places. Number one is this shouldn't be a line in the creed. Okay. And number two is this is a reference to Christ's, uh, to penal substitution, to the cross. Christ receives the, uh, bears the wrath of the Father on the cross. Right. So those are the two options that you get really in evangelicalism. Uh, I don't take either of those in the book. Huh. Which option do you take? How, so, should we, how should we be thinking about this? Yeah, so the gist of what I argue in the book is that biblically and historically, the line in the creed should be taken as a reference to the beginning of Christ's exaltation, that in his descent to the dead, Jesus experiences death as any human would. His body is buried in a, in a grave, or, you know, and that doesn't mean burial is always the option, but his body is... is uh, buried and his soul departs, his human soul departs to the place of the dead, just like any human. And that in doing so, by virtue of his divinity, he's actually victorious over death. That's proleptically looking forward to his resurrection. He's not, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not completed yet, but that's the first stage of his exaltation, his proclamation of victory. It's not a second chance for salvation. It's not, you know, him going down and preaching the gospel and giving an invitation. He does, he does preach, but it's a, it's a, proclamatory act. He's saying, hey, I win. Death is defeated. I'm about to rise again. Yeah. Uh, so it's, a, it's an entirely victorious act. It happens on Saturday, not on Friday. It's not torment. He doesn't, he doesn't experience the fires of hell on Saturday. Yeah. It's not abandoned by the Father. It's so no interruption. No interruption. Yeah. Between just, him and the Father? No interruption between him and the Father. Okay. It's entirely victorious. So wait. Okay. So, I so wanna, let, me, let me ask you on that point, though. Um, with with this, um, how do you how do you interpret? Well, I'm, I have a lot of questions, especially on the historical. We'll get to that. But in, in relation to kind of the exegetical base for your position, mm. um, we've got several statements. But one one that would be curious to to connect the descent to is to thief on the cross. Hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. How does the connection between Christ? descent and Christ being in paradise, uh, how would right. you explain that? Give me your nutshell theology of descent in relation to paradise. Sure. So the, the, the basic idea here is that paradise is the, and this is, this is metaphorical language to describe immaterial realities, right? So right. when I say the word tear or when I say under the earth, right, that's, that's metaphorical. But uh, the basic concept of the place of the dead is that it's, it's the underworld but the underworld has different compartments to it. 
Okay. So paradise would be the upper compartment of the place of the dead where the righteous dead okay. go. Uh, Hades, sometimes Sheol, sometimes Gehenna would be the unrighteous compartment. So Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus is assuming this kind of portrait, yes, right? that's right. Okay. So Luke 16 assumes this, and then Jesus refers to that same compartment to okay. the thief on the cross in chapter 23. Uh, and then there's a third compartment often, which is uh, Tartarus, where the imprisoned angels are. So Per Jude? Right. right. And Second Peter. So, you know, the place of the dead was conceived of as having these at least three different compartments, righteous, unrighteous, evil angels. And when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, he's making a reference to that upper, upper compartment, place of the righteous dead. So he descends to the dead and he rests. He, what is he doing in that? In that what's part of that? How is that part of his, the, yeah. it's about the exaltation element? Sure. Well, at the very least, right, at, at the very least, the, biblically we want to say that Jesus experiences death like any human does. And so exegetically right there, you're just saying, well, Matthew 12, 40, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If you look at that text in comparison to Jonah, it's obvious he's talking about the abyss, the place of the dead. Jesus, Jesus dies and experiences death just like any human does. Acts 2, same thing. The question, the question after that is, Okay, he experiences death just as any human does. What does that mean? Right. Well, theologically, we can already say, just by virtue of a hypostatic union, Jesus being the God-man, anything he does as a human is redemptive. Uh, it's, it's, it's reclaiming, right? It's, uh, and so without any other texts involved, there's something redemptive going on in him experiencing human death. So it's like reclaiming death yeah. from, from curse in a yeah, sense. Yeah, um, and defeating it. Now, if we were to pull in some other texts, so Ephesians 4, Romans 10, Revelation 1, and then controversially, 1 Peter 3. I mean, yeah. I mean all of those That's are... a weirdo. All of those That's are... What, that was what I was going to yeah. ask about. All of those are controversial. Hit us 1 um, Peter. Hit us with 1 Peter Yeah, what do, we, what do we make of this 1 well, Peter let, business? Let, I mean, let, it's bizarre. Yeah. I don't want to give away the whole book, but oh, I mean, that's true. That's, uh, yeah, everybody's got to buy the book. Uh, Revel that Revelation one eighteen, right? I have the keys of death and Hades. Yeah, Jesus went down and got the keys and took them out of the hands of death and Hades. There's something victorious going on. Then you add in this is getting spicy. Then, then you add in Ephesians four uh, and First Peter three, and uh, Ephesians four and First Peter three, and that there's uh, two other things that are added with Ephesians four and First Peter three. First uh, Peter three adds this proclamatory aspect. So he, he in the spirit, yeah. right? Yeah. He uh, he proclaims to the evil angels or to the to the evil spirits. Yeah. Uh, and I take that as uh, I take that prepositional phrase in which to be uh, a statement about the time between what's what Peter's referring to the two events. Uh, uh, his death and then his resurrections in between that time. And so he's proclaiming to the evil spirits. What does that mean? It just means very simply that whatever it would mean for a disembodied human soul to proclaim victory to evil spirits, that's what's going on. So, you know, you take I won. that. I won. Yeah. I won. What's up? I won, punks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So, <laughs> so, you know, if you think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, which we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, in that parable, there's a description, and, and perhaps metaphorical, analogical in some sense, of the the rich man in Hades 
disembodied soul in Hades talking to Lazarus in paradise, right? There's this chasm between them. It can't be crossed, but nevertheless, there's communication happening between compartments. And so, you know, Jesus is in this this paradise compartment, but he's... He can speak to all the dead, righteous and unrighteous, and unrighteous, and to the evil spirits or the evil angels. And he's saying to everybody, "What's up? I win." This just makes Jesus Boom. so like wow, victory dance. Well, Jesus. it is. It's it is, and it's you know Philippians two ten. Every knee will bow under the earth. <laughs> Every knee will bow. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's a victorious element. So that's what you get with First Peter three. With Ephesians four, you get the release of the captives. If, right. you t- if you take the yeah. descending clause there to be about descending to the lower regions of the earth is the descent, you get released of the captive. So what does that mean? Does it mean that he's letting people out of hell? Yeah. Does it mean that he, this is like a universalist uh, event? No, it doesn't David mean that. David Bentley Hart thinks so. <laughs> Sorry, I don't no, know what no, he thinks. I mean, he might not even pay attention to as, that verse. As, as so. honey badger as I often am, even I'm afraid to say right now, David Bentley Hart is wrong on that, but he is wrong on that. So uh, what I would say I is... I don't actually know what he says on yeah, it. Uh, I, I don't even know if he talks about it. Whatever. Anyway, uh, why are we talking about David Bentley yeah, Hart? Come on, I don't Derek. know, man. Universal, on, you just said universalism. Okay, it's the fair. hot thing right now. Okay, fair. What the, get the kids going. So Ephesians 4, does he release everybody from hell? I No. Uh, what, what Ephesians 4 is describing is the fact that prior to Christ's incarnation, and particularly in his descent, prior to his death, his atoning death, what was Israel doing? What was faithful Israel, true Israel doing? They were waiting on the Messiah to show up. What happens in the descent? He shows up in his, yeah. in his human soul, via his human soul, and then he rises from the dead. And so paradise has changed. It's no longer a place of waiting. It's a place of reality. The risen Christ is among them. So let me ask you two things. Um, first, what do we? How how we talk? You talked about history. How novel do you think your view is? Because to a lot of people who are hearing this, this is going to be like, "Whoa, this is weird. I've never heard this. Whatever." Maybe they've never thought of the descent. I mean, how how weird is this view in relation sure. to history? And then second, uh, and you can just in succession. What do we lose without it? Like, what, 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 where, what are we losing without this kind yeah. of thing? So, uh, in terms of my view and novelty, uh, my view is the historic view. Uh, Justin Bass has a book uh, called The Battle for the Keys, which is on Revelation 118. And he makes this statement at the very beginning. Uh, the, the view that Christ experienced death as all humans do, etc., that I've said, and that he, in doing so, was victorious, preached and released the captives is ubiquitous by the end of the second century. And that's what was that was what was always meant by the creedal clause. And now I'm going to make Derek mad until Calvin. Uh, Calvin innovates on the doctrine and moves it from Saturday to Friday, moves it from victory to torment. And I I, am, I fully affirm penal substitution. I think Calvin's right about penal Baptist, substitution. Baptists believe in penal substitution? Baptists believe in everything that is right and good. Uh, <laughs> and, I, you know, but he's wrong about importing that into the creedal phrase. Uh, Butzer also innovates and says, oh, it just means the same thing as he was buried. Neither of those things would, would have been what the church was confessing for the first 1,500 years of their life. Uh, Luther is way better on the descent. So what is, I mean, what is Calvin's 
hesitant about that? What's it, what's he what's yeah. he anxious about? Yeah, so I think Calvin's nervous about a few things, hesitant about a few things. He's 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 hesitant about uh, three tiered cosmology. Mm -hmm. So this idea that uh, the universe is divided into three spheres, given what's happening scientifically around his time period. Renaissance stuff, Reformation stuff. He's nervous about three-tiered cosmology. He's also nervous in particular about uh, Roman Catholic iterations of understanding that three-tiered cosmology with things like purgatory, Good. This is limbo, the fathers, etc. That makes sense. Um, it, and I think Calvin is also nervous about especially Roman uh, deviations from the original meaning of the clause to include things like a... a, a um, well, I don't want to say universalist strain, but there is some ambiguity about who's released in Roman Catholic thought at the descent. In some versions of Roman Catholic thought, it is not just faithful Israelites who are released. It's also faithful Israelites and virtuous pagans. And so there's this kind of implicit inclusivism yeah. going on, and I think Calvin is nervous about all of that. Okay. Would you, would you say he's also cur uh, interested in the... In the um Basically, the finished workness of, of of like the death, like there's no extra, there's no right. I mean, with, uh, yeah, I, you know, when Calvin talks about this in the Institutes, he really doesn't go into a lot of rationale for it. He just says, uh, he says, well, sure, he descended to the dead. This is in the creed. We don't need to delete it. Some other people are saying we should delete it. No, we shouldn't delete creedal clauses. So he's, who would he's, ever want to delete? He's referring that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, Okay. Uh, <laughs> People want to delete it. Uh, even today? Even today, Derek. As, as recently as 1991. Uh, so, you know, Leo Judd, Martin Butzer. Uh, Mar Butzer actually argues for a, a redundancy, meaning Leo Judd just said, let's get, let's get rid of it. Um, so, so Calvin says, nah, don't get rid of it. Uh, it has to mean something. It's in there. Yeah. But he, he, he just explains it without really saying why he's explaining it this way, that it's about Christ's experience of torment, the wrath of God on the cross. So, which is, which is ironically closer to, I think, how most people hear the line these yes, days, because right. we're most familiar yep. with hearing he descended into hell. Right, right. So, the question is, what do you think sort of hangs on, I mean, you're, you're very explicit, it's to the dead, you've said it over and yep. over and over, not into hell. Right. What do you think hangs on that difference? Sure. And why should we opt for to the dead over yep. descended into hell? Yeah, so the word hell communicates torment to us. Uh, that, that's not what it was originally communicated. So there's an issue with, the reason it's translated hell today is in part because in Latin, uh, the, the creedal clause varies between using inferna and inferos. Inferos is to the dead. Yeah. Inferna would be, for us, infernal, right? right. Torment. But in, in early medieval Latin, to get really nerdy here yeah. for a second, in early, medieval, in early medieval Latin, those two terms were synonymous, and they both just meant, basically, the place of the dead. Infer inferna comes to take on this t aspect of torment, but doesn't originally mean that when it's when the clause is written. The same thing is true of the German hell. Uh, yeah. It just originally meant covered over place, like a grave. So uh, to, to go to hell would be just to go to the grave, right? But for us, it's taking on this idea of torment. So in the book, I just say, I think it would be more clear for English-speaking Western churches to say to the dead 
or to the place of the dead or even unto into death yeah. something like that that would that would be uh, clear now the reason I say to the dead uh, in the book and on the title is is for a number of reasons first of all that's actually the gloss that's given uh, in the book of common prayer for those who are uncomfortable with to hell and so right. there's already a kind of a liturgical rationale were you, were you a Baptist that was borrowing from the Anglicans? Did I just hear uh, that correctly? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Don't call me a bricklayer. Uh, so, <laughs> so there's there's already sort of a liturgical rationale, but also to the dead communicates something that's going on in Greek in the New Testament. Um, when when the New Testament refers to this event, uh, it talks about Jesus going or coming up from or going down to. Uh, ek necron, the yeah. dead ones. It's participial. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and so, to the dead, kind of, it's it's evocative of this idea that to the dead can be a place and to a people. Good. Uh, so that's why. So, for all those reasons, I would just say, descended to the dead. I think what we lose uh, in this, if we don't confess it, we lose a few things. We lose. I think we lose first of all the holistic aspect of Christ's kingship. Yeah. Christ is king in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. He is not just king of the, the middle and upper tiers of the universe. He's king over all things. And he has proclaimed his victory to the, to the whole universe, including to the place of the dead in his descent. Uh, he's also defeated it, right? So he's come out of it uh, as the victor. I, I think secondly, and this is really where I think the ancient church was, this would take a lot to prove definitively, but this is my hunch. Uh, the ancient church, it seems like, focused on this clause at times when Apollinarianism was on the rise. Right? So Apollinarianism is this heresy that says Jesus only takes on a human body, or the, the Son only takes on a human body and not a human body and a human soul. And what better clause of the okay. creed yeah, nice. that, that's, to deal that's with Apollinarianism than the, the clause that says, in his human soul... Right. Yeah. Right, that's good. Jesus goes to the place of the dead. That's A plus well, work. I, I, okay, so, <laughs> Wait, so, so, I've, so I've stop. Because he's given us a lot of the book. And I, I want, know. Okay. Well, my last question isn't about that. So here's what I want to know. Okay. For this is going to be a troll. For, for, no, not at all. Not at okay. all. I'm, I'm nice got a, to our guests. I've got, I've got a third reason, but go ahead. Uh, no, 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 no. No, give save, us your third reason. Okay, okay, third reason, pastorally, right? When somebody when somebody dies, or when you're you're facing your own death, yeah. right? What you can say to somebody who has just had a loved one die, or when you are facing your own death, is not just. And this is the ultimate hope, right? That Jesus rose from the dead, and so we're going to rise from the dead. Absolutely, yeah. right? But you can also say Jesus has gone through the valley of the shadow of death before you. Yeah. You you he has not only died, but he has experienced being dead. Yeah. Good. In duration. And you, as you enter into death, he's gone before you in the valley of the shadow of death and has come out the other side just as you will when he, when he brings you up in the general resurrection of the dead. So it's a really pastoral doctrine. Yeah, that's, that's great. So my question then is, as people are listening at home, pastors, how should we respond liturgically to this? Mm. Should we fold in Holy Saturday to our Easter celebrations yeah. like how should we how should we handle this as a church well first of all if you're a church that isn't uh, confessing the creeds regularly you should do that uh, secondly <laughs> and I say that as a Baptist uh, yeah secondly uh, include the descent clause yeah uh, and then more specifically about uh, Holy Week there's a great tradition I think 
in Eastern Orthodoxy where, and, and this is sometimes true also in Roman Catholicism, uh, but especially in Eastern Orthodoxy, they make a big deal out of the descent uh, and out of, out of its relation to the resurrection. And so on Holy Saturday, uh, their, their Holy Saturday liturgy includes, it depends on how many baptisms there are, what time it is, but towards the late evening, uh, they enter into the sanctuary. There's a number of uh, scriptures read, songs sung, whatever, but it's very, it's very somber, dark. The, the sanctuary is actually dark in this instance. And then at midnight, on, on Sunday, right? Yeah. It moves from darkness to light. They flip on all the lights. They start singing, Alleluia, Christ is risen. They walk outside and sing. Yeah. This is an amazing event that connects what's going on on Saturday, which is something that we can't see, right? right. To us, everything is dark, but Jesus is still at work, even in, the, even in the valley of the shadow of death. But then we move into the light of Easter Sunday yeah. and live in resurrection. And it's, really, it's a really beautiful liturgical moment that I think we could recapture. That'll preach. Uh, I'm, on, Matt, I'm on board. Matt, this was really helpful. I, I think I'll, for, for people, as much as you've given us, they'll still want to pick up the book, to yeah. get into the exegesis, get into the history, because it is, it is new territory for a lot of folks, sure. especially uh, Protestant, like more evangelical Protestants. So I, I think if you're, if you're looking for that, again, we'll have that in the show notes at Mirror Orthodoxy. I know I'm going to pick it up here at ETS and, and go home and read it, even though Matt should just give it to me for free. <laughs> we'll just leave that aside. I'm not going to, not going to publicly complain Come about on, that or something like right. that. But, um, but you should pick it up. Check it out. I'm really excited about this one for a while. So thanks for coming on and talking to us, Matt. Really thanks, helpful. Guys. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate that. And for those of you who are listening at home, this has been the weirdest, strangest episode of Mere Fidelity I think that we've had. Uh, oh. No? It's been pretty weird. It's been pretty weird. Uh, but we are grateful for your time, for your attention. Uh, if you'd like to join our Merry Band of Supporters, uh, we are doing videos on... Lately, we're doing books that belong in a theological toolbox. So we're talking about those. So if you want to help us support the show financially, you may do so on Patreon. The uh, link to do so will be in the show notes at Mere Orthodoxy. Uh, until next time... This has been Mere Fidelity.